God, thank you for the people in this church. And uh, Lord, um, some of the things that you say in the scriptures this morning uh, will be pretty convicting. Uh, Some of it kind of frightening, some of it surprising, um, but also encouraging. And we ask, Lord, that you would speak through it uh, to each individual person here and minister to us the way that uh, you see fit to fit into your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So a few years ago, a water valve broke on the main floor here at the church, right where you guys got those goodies, those baked goods. And so it leaked all night long. It leaked all night long, and, and so that entire area was flooded. And, and uh, so it, it came out to the hallway, and it flooded into the chapel. So when we got to it, um, that, the carpet was just all soaked. And so we had to pull it up, right? We had to pull it up, and then we found that all the padding under there was, was gone. Like, it, it, we had to replace all of it. Um, it, it was ruined. And so the water ran downstairs. And so the same thing happened down there. The, the, the hallway, the, the padding down there under the carpet was all ruined, and the carpets were okay, So, but we had to pull it all up. And then the, the ceiling panels downstairs, some of them were just ruined. They were falling apart. And uh, a bunch of the stuff that we had down there, uh, were, it was ruined. We had to throw it out. And so some of the, the furnishings were ruined. Um, the, the laminate in there, some of it buckled. It was just a huge mess. And we spent an entire day tending to that problem. We, we brought in industrial fans to, to dry out stuff. We had to pull the laminate up and, and do the fans under there. We had to pull the carpets up and put the fans there. We had to go to Hertz and, and rent a bunch of these industrial humidifi- dehumidifiers so that we can dry out everything. And uh, it, it was just a mess, and moisture was everywhere, and uh, it was just so much work. It wasn't something like Hurricane Katrina where, where it came from the outside, and it ruined, fr- ruined us from the outside. Because the outside of the church was fine. It was inside that we had problems. And so this mess was inside the church. And this is what we have here in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 11 through 36. There's a huge mess inside the church. There's a huge mess in the people of God. And this is the problem. Have any of you met a crooked minister? And you're like, yeah, right there. Um, the, the Bible... The Bible isn't um, pro-minister or pro-pastor or pro-priest, but it's not anti-clergy either. Right? The Bible doesn't try to cover up the facts, but it just presents the truth as it is. And it talks about crooked clergy because they actually exist. And we must learn how to deal with them and see what God thinks about them. Now, there are enemies outside the church. We all know that. There are, but the big problems were inside the church. So what happens when God comes and deals with the situation? So in our text, it's about 1100 B.C., and we'll notice that things in the church during that time wouldn't be so bad if it weren't for the clergy. And the clergy were the big problem. And the main point of this section of Scripture is that God is vigilant to purge His people. God is attentive to a clean house. And this is the main point of 1 Samuel chapter 2. But let's not just look at the main point. Let's take a look at all these verses, 11 through 36, and see what else the author of Samuel wants us to understand. And some other things the author wants us to see in this passage are actually quite frightening, quite surprising, and quite encouraging. So let's start out by seeing what frightening thing the author wants us to see, which we can find in verses 11 through 17 and verses 22 through 25. Let's start off by reading verses 11 through 17. Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. 
So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you but raw. And if the man said to him, They should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would answer him and say, No, but you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. We see how things are pretty bad religiously, as these young priests were corrupt by taking what was not theirs. And verse 12 tells us they were corrupt and didn't know the Lord. The King James Version of the Bible tells us that they were sons of Belial, meaning that they were wicked, they were scoundrels, and they did not know the Lord. This doesn't mean that they didn't know the history of Israel and what God had done. They knew that. It doesn't mean that they didn't know the principles of their faith. They knew that. They knew about what God had done. They knew what Israel believed about their faith. They knew about the Lord. But they didn't know the Lord. They didn't know the Lord. They didn't acknowledge God. God didn't make any difference to them. They just knew about Him. And when we have clergy like this, the church is in for trouble. And these type of people tend to abuse their power. And it's abuse, it's abuse of power that dominates the agenda when First and Second Samuel bring up sin. And the Samuel books are books about leadership, how to handle power, and how not to handle power. Now, why is the abuse of power so sinful. God is the Creator. And in regard to power, He is unbridled in His strength. Right? And with His great power, He shows us the pattern of what is good. And so, with His power, God chooses to serve. He serves. Jesus came to serve, not to be served. And in creation, God made the world for us. He served us. He wants the same attitude out of those who represent Him as leaders of God's people. Now there are a couple of offenses here in 1 Samuel chapter 2. One of the offenses is in verses 13 through 17. It's an offense relating to worship. It's a liturgical offense. Now let's look at verses 13 and 14. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot, and the priest would take for himself that whatever the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. So here we have the, the priest sending out one of his servants with this barbecue trident. It, it was quite large. Because the fire was pretty hot, so you know you got to have a large thing, and um, and these were worshippers there, right? These were worshippers who who were cooking the peace offering. So when worshippers they they offered a peace offering or a communion sacrifice, the worshipper got back some of the meat that they were they were sacrificing for their own meal. Part of that was for them, you know. They they sacrificed, but then part of that meal was also for them. So a worshipper is cooking some of the meat from the sacrifice that was to be their own meal. But here comes this pre-servant with his barbecue pitchfork, like a devil with a pitchfork, and he thrusts it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot or whatever uh, wok their meat was cooking in. And whatever the fork is able to bring up and, and it brings up to the, to the priest, he just steals it. He just stole from them. And you can imagine how that would make you feel as a worshiper. The guy that you trust, right? The guy that is supposed to be encouraging you, supporting you, he steals from you. What the heck? Right? Now now moving on to verse 15. Because there is something more that, that they do that is actually corrupt here. It's not just that they steal food from them. There's more. Also before they burn the fat, the priest servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take the boiled meat from you, but raw. So before the fat was even burnt, right? 
Now, now fat was to be burnt on the altar to God, to Yahweh. And so even before God, who was there to be worshipped, and why people were there in the first place, these priests would come and, and cut, in, cut in line before God and want raw meat to cook for themselves. Even before God. Which is why they were there. And if the man said to him, they should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. Right? These guys weren't even fighting them. They're like, just, you know, we're here for God. Just let it, and then you can take whatever you want. He would then answer him, no. But you must give it now. If not, I will take it by force. So if a worshiper confronted the servant of these priests about waiting for the fat to be burned first, doesn't that just sound normal? To have reverence, to offer God His portion to Him first, and then take what He wants afterwards. I mean, these guys really aren't fighting. Like, take what you want afterwards. But we came here to worship God. The servant would would then act all thug, right? Right? And then threaten the worshiper. You better give that to me. I'll take it. Right? And, and if he didn't get what he wants, then he'll take it by force. Right? So this is all wrong in multiple fronts. And they were stealing meat from people and they were stealing from the Lord. They were stealing even though there was meat that was also provided for them already. They already had stuff for them. They didn't have to take it. Leviticus chapter 7 verses 31 through 32 tells us the priests were given meat. So they were already given meat. It's not like these guys didn't have food to eat. They actually had good pieces to eat too. Right? They were just being greedy gluttons. Look at Leviticus chapter 7, verse 31. They had good pieces of meat. And the priest shall burn the fat on the altar, but the breast shall be Aaron's and his son's. Man, they had the white meat, right? Also the right thigh you shall give to the priest as a heave offering from the sacrifices of your peace offerings. And the dark meat. What else do you want? So, so the priests were already getting the breast and they were getting the right leg from the sacrifice. What else do you want, man? And a portion was already set aside for them. The other meat they were taking was food they were stealing from the worshipers. The meat they were taking with the pitchfork did not belong to them. So you can imagine how the worshipers were feeling who, who came to Shiloh to sacrifice to God. How ripped off they felt and how it just may have deterred them from coming to worship God. And if they did come, how it just negatively affected their heart for worship. How can you worship God fully knowing that someone you're supposed to trust, someone that is supposed to be uh, putting you before the Lord is stealing from you? And knowing that they are stealing from God. How? How? And this was an offense in a place of worship. And so you can imagine the, the extremely negative influence it had on God's people during worship. And you get an idea of how this negativity affected those who came to worship God. And here we have this liturgical offense. Verse 18, But Samuel ministered before the Lord even as a child wearing a linen ephod, Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe. That's awesome. That's so nice. And bring it to him year by year. And when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice, man, the love of a mom. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, the Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. Then they would go to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Notice how the author shows us the care of the boy and God's blessing on the parents for their faithfulness. And if you look at verses 11 and 18, you'll notice a progression in in regards to Samuel's ministry. In verse 11, we're told, The child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. In verse 18, we're told, Samuel ministered before the Lord. Do you notice the difference? Do you notice the progression? Do you notice the development of Samuel? The child ministered to the Lord before Eli versus Samuel ministered before the Lord. There is growth in Samuel. And it's explicitly said in the last 
um, phrase in verse 21, or the, yeah, in verse 21. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. We're just plain out told. So what's interesting that is that in Hebrew, the word great, gadal, is used of Samuel in verses 21 and 26, and it's also used of the sins of Eli's sons in verse 17. They're, they're all from the same Hebrew root word, gadal. And so keep that in mind as we continue through the study today because this is going to be quite fascinating later on. And earlier we talked about a liturgical offense, and now we come to another offense. And this one's a moral offense. Verse 22, Now Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel, and how they lay with women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Everyone talked about this. Everyone knew about this. It's public knowledge that Eli's sons were sleeping around with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tabernacle. These were women who did did the custodial work as mentioned in Exodus chapter 38 verse 8. And Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests who would sleep around with with these women who, who served at the temple and everyone knew about it. So Eli confronts them. He rebukes them. He tells them not to do such a thing. Verse 23, So he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. Everyone knows. Know my sons. For it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. So we see that Eli's sons had a couple of offenses, a liturgical offense and a moral offense. But what was that in verse 25? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. The Lord desired to kill them? I don't know about you. That's scary to me. The Lord desires to kill? Man, holy moly. Right? Now, this is a scary progression here, right? Now, listen to what the Bible says. The Bible does not record for us that they didn't listen to Eli and therefore they're sentenced to death. Verse 25 tells us they didn't listen to their father's voice because God already decided to put them to death. Hophni and Phinehas' deafness to Eli's warning isn't the reason for God's judgment. It is the result of God's judgment. Now let's look at this a little deeper to gain more clarity here. And we can't separate this death sentence from God from their corruption, right? We can't. These are linked together. So what verse 25 is telling us is that if we go in our unrepentant ways as Hophni and Phinehas did, if we go in our rebellion against the Lord like they did, God will. If we're not repentant, God will confirm He will confirm us in that rebellion so that we won't be able to repent. Repentance will become impossible. And if you want a doctrinal doctrinal name for this, it's called judicial hardening. And this is a frightening thing, isn't it? If we keep going on in our wicked, in our unrepentant, rebellious ways... And we're not listening to God through through this all along, then God will confirm. He will confirm us in our unrepentance. And in our absence of penitence, in our own rebellion that we have chosen to do, it may make it impossible for us to repent. Isn't this alarming? And there's a line. There's a threshold. Right? And God knows where that line is. God knows where that threshold is. You and I don't know where it is. I cannot tell you where it is. If you do one more thing, that's it. Right? Or if you say like, oh man, if I do one more thing, that's it. We don't know. 
Right? There, there are some people that go so far and you're thinking like, oh, that's it. But it's not. God reaches His hand of grace and His love and He pulls those people back and, and those people repent and He comes back. And then there's others that, you know, don't go that far, but their line is over here. We don't know. I'm sure Hophni and Phineas understood repentance intellectually. But they couldn't embrace it spiritually. They couldn't embrace it in their spirit, in their soul, in their heart. They knew all about it, I'm sure. They had knowledge of it. But the line was crossed. The threshold was stepped over. And this is frightening stuff. May we fear God. May we tremble at His feet, who, at God who can justly make sinners deaf to the very call of repentance. Now, how responsible are we for what our children do? The Bible recognizes that we are judged by our children. And even as much as we can influence them, they are free to make their own decision. And if we look at just this text, we do see that Eli did confront, and he also did so strongly, but he didn't defrock them. Right? He only went so far. Right? He only went up to a certain point. He didn't do as much as he could. Now turn with me to several of, uh, verses in the Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1. And then we're also going to look at Proverbs chapter 15, verse 20. And also Proverbs chapter 17, verse 25. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 20. A wise son makes a father glad, and bitterness to her who bore him. Oh, sorry. Wrong one. That was in that. Proverbs 15, 20. A wise man makes a father glad, but a foolish man despises his mother. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 25. A foolish son is a grief to his father, and bitterness to her who bore him. Now, why do these Proverbs bring this issue up so many times? Because this is a universal truth. One of the greatest gifts that we can give to our parents is to live a moral and a wise life. It's one of the greatest gifts that we can give to our parents. It's also one of the greatest difficulties of parenthood that our kids are free and they can make or break our happiness. Verse 26, And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. What is the author doing by placing verse 26 in the middle of the story of Eli and his son's actions and the fate here? And you remember that root word that I asked you to keep in mind, Gadal? What is the author doing here? See, the author is, is showing the growth of good leadership in the midst of bad leadership. Eli's sons grew great in sin, while Samuel grew great in favor with God and with men. And we'll get into this a little bit more as we continue in our study today, but let's move on for now and we'll, we'll come back to this verse as well as other verses. Now, back in verse 25, we saw something that's frightening. And moving through the rest of chapter 2, we'll, we'll see something that is surprising. Verse 27. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest? To offer upon my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me? To make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people. According to these verses, what is the sin of the priests? Sure, they are being sacrilegious, but it's more than just that. There was a sin in the liturgical sense, a sin, a sin in the moral sense, but there was also a sin of ingratitude. 
They were given a position of respect, a position of honor, and they didn't perform it with dignity. They were ungrateful to God for His giving them their position. And you notice in verse 27 that a man just shows up. He comes out of nowhere. And we don't know who this is or where he's from. We're not giving that, given that information. We're told he's a man of God. He's a prophet who's unnamed. And he just shows up in the story and he speaks a word of judgment to Eli. And the prophet begins with the word of grace in verses 27 and 28. Begins with grace. He reminds Eli of what God has done for him and and Eli's ancestors. He reminds Eli of all the goodness that God has shown to him, to his ancestral lineage. But then it moves to an accusation in verse 29. Then in the rest of the chapter, there's a judgment announced by the prophet. Now let's read on, verse 30. Therefore the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And for those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. And you will see an enemy in my dwelling place, despite all the good which God does for Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. But any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Is there anything alarming to you about these verses? Verse 30 is very alarming to me, right? Therefore the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. He said that, right? That was a covenant made. But now the Lord says, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. This is heavy stuff. An everlasting covenant would be invalidated. That Eli's house and his descendants will be decimated. This is serious. Also, the mistakes of the fathers go forward into the lives of those who will follow them. I'm a parent. It's scary for me to think that my sacrilege will affect my children, will affect my daughters. Now, what is the cause of the covenant being broken? If we despise God, then we forfeit His honor. Right? What we do now affects our future. God gives us the dignity of causation. We can affect our future And it's a dignity that He's granted us, but with that comes responsibility. And it's alarming, isn't it? Verse 34, Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons. On Hophni and Phinehas, in one day they shall die, both of them. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, Please put me in one of the priestly position, that I may eat a piece of bread. We see here that God will judge clergy who treat the flock poorly. The harshest Judgment comes upon the church leaders. Bummer. Bummer. Right? Please turn with me to James chapter 3, verse 1, and then also Luke chapter 12, verses 47 through 48. James chapter 3, verse 1. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Bummer, man. See, and it's not only the Lord who judges more harshly, okay? 
people judge harshly too. And Luke chapter 12, verses 47 through 48. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much more will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. Bummer, man. See, not only do church leaders receive a stricter judgment, but Jesus tells us, He who is given much, much more will be required. Is that fair? Is that fair? Who will be the most strictly judged in this church? Me and the other church leaders here. Bummer! Right? Our Lord is a great giver of gifts. Right? It it is fair. It is fair. It is fair that He expects more of those uh, who He gives more to. That's fair. And we, as church leaders, we're blessed to be here. We're, we're blessed that He gives us the opportunity to serve in His kingdom to this capacity. And He's given us much to be here. He's given me so much. God is really fair. So it's fair that He's stricter in judgment towards our leadership. And He will hold us accountable for the gifts of influence, the gifts of power that we hold. And isn't this good news for for those of you who have been abused by the church? This is really good news, right? For those of you who have been hurt by the church, this is awesome. This is something to throw a party about right here, right? It's a serious warning for those who think that, you know, leadership is just a place of perks. For those of us who come into the ministry with the wrong motives, for those of us who think that, oh, it's just a cool thing, Do you realize what we just read in James chapter 3 and Luke 12? A stricter judgment, man. To whom much is given, much is required. Really? Do you really want that? That's crazy. It's a burden that we have to wisely approach. We can't just do it just like, oh, I want to do it. It looks fun. Sounds fun. You have to, it has to be a calling. Now we have a couple of things that are pretty frightening, that were pretty alarming, and we looked over those things already, but we also have something that's pretty surprising. And the surprising thought is that it can be wicked to practice tolerance. You're thinking, what? It's wicked to practice intolerance. We have to be tolerant. No, no, no. Before we jump there, it may be wicked to practice tolerance. Not intolerance. Tolerance. And now this is very surprising for us in the Bay Area because this is our MO, right? Tolerance. We must be tolerant. But this is something that's highlighted in verse 29. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me? To make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people. The prophet is highlighting Eli's wrong in this verse. But it's not just Eli, because the you in verse 29, that's in plural form in the Hebrew. It's not singular, just to Eli. The prophet is including Eli and his two sons. Hophni and Phinehas. And you'll, you'll also notice that it's plural when the prophet uses the word yourselves. It's plural. Eli was involved in this too. Eli was implicated in this. Hophni and Phinehas may be the ones who were the biggest culprits, but Eli was implicated as well. And Eli was also guilty of showing disrespect for the worship of God because Eli did fatten himself on the finest cuts of meat. When those pre-servants went in there and got that stuff, he did partake in the moral sense uh, of, or in the liturgical sense of violating that. He didn't 
break the moral, break it in the moral sense. I mean, he wasn't sleeping with the women who worked there, but apparently Eli ate of the cuts of meat that his son's servants stole from the people. And we see that Eli corrected his sons. He rebuked them. But he was still involved in their sin. He was implicated as well as he disrespected the worship of God. But notice the heart of the problem in verse 29. Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I commanded in my dwelling place? And honor your sons more than me. Honor your sons more than me. That's the heart of the problem. Honoring your sons more than me. Do you see how the prophet revealed to Eli his idols? His idols were his boys. Eli loved and cherished the affection, the, 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 uh, the acceptance of his sons more than he loved honoring God. And Eli rebuked his sons and he tried to correct them, but he didn't do any more than that. That's where he just stopped. And he would only go so far as to uh, do the most he could that he could do with retaining his son's affection, with retaining his son's acceptance. But if he didn't want to go any further than that. He didn't want to lose that. But in so doing, he just flushed the honor of God down the toilet. And some of us may think that Hophni and Phineas, oh, they're grown men. Right? Eli could only do so much. You know, that's true. But what Eli failed to practice was church discipline. And some may think that just, you know, that's just how they are. Right? They, they can't be corrected or rebuked or, or into correction. You know, we just got to love them into the thing. We got to, you know... And, and they were going to be sleeping around anyway with women no matter what. That's just who they are. And they're going to do whatever they're going to do. Maybe. Maybe so. Because maybe if they decide to be immoral, that they're probably going to be immoral no matter where. Right? No matter what position they hold. But you know what? They didn't have to be priests. They didn't have to be in the ministry. They didn't have to be pastors. They didn't have to be in the clergy. They didn't have to bring shame on God's worship. They didn't have to hinder people's worship of God. They didn't have to get in the way of that and, and on God's people because of their immorality. You know, Eli should have kicked them out. Should have kicked them to the curb. Kicked them out of the priesthood. It's the same for verses 13 through 17. Eli, Eli might not have been able to prevent his sons from being these profane gluttons. But they don't have to be profane gluttons serving in the house of God. Eli wasn't willing to go that far with his discipline. He only stopped there. And God spoke through the prophet to Eli and said, You honor your sons more than me. And the idea that tolerance can be wrong, it rubs some of us the wrong way, doesn't it? It does. But does it rub us the wrong way because we love something more than we honor God and the name of Jesus Christ? It's something to pray about, something to meditate about, to ask the Lord about. And sometimes that something else is the approval or the acceptance of other people. And maybe people you know who seem like really good people. Maybe your friends, maybe your family, your colleague, your peers, whomever. But we crave their approval, their acceptance, more than being satisfied with Jesus Christ Himself. And we find that just like Eli, we have idols too. What is the Bible saying here? What are these verses saying to us? This prophecy to Eli tells us that we can end up in grave sin by thinking that it's important to be nice to other people. How easy it is for us to practice a, a gutless compassion that never wants to offend anyone. Where we equate being nice with love and ignore God's laws and despite, despise His holiness. 
And we do not necessarily seek, seek God's honor when we spare human feelings. And I'm not saying go out there and be a jerk and offend people and tell them they're going to hell and all that stuff. But I, I'm kind of swinging the pendulum the other way because I think we struggle with it on this side. You know, if we were a church that was on this way, I would have go the other way, you know? Um, so there are things to frighten us in this text. And there are things that surprise us in this text. And there are also things to uh, encourage us in this text. And it doesn't seem like it's very encouraging so far. Like, oh man, oh, oh. uh." But there's something here for us to pull out of the passage. And we have to keep our antenna up now in order to receive this message of encouragement. Right? So perk up a little bit. So let's try to pull these things out. And let's start out by going back to verse 11. Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli the priest. And then we're told of the offenses of Eli's sons and what they had committed until we get to verse 18. And in verse 18, But Samuel ministered before the Lord even as a child wearing a linen ephod. And then hop over to verse 21. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Then comes all this immorality of Hophni and Phinehas until we get to verse 26, where it reads, And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and men. And then it jumps over the, jump over to the first verse in the first verse of chapter 3. The scriptures tell us, Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli. Did did you notice those five little Samuel side notes in in the middle of all that darkness? It's just like inserted in there. Do you see the importance of those little Samuel interjections in there? 1 Samuel chapter 2 verses 11 through 36 seems to be dominated by this arrogance, by this immorality of Hophni and Phinehas and all the, the bad stuff happening inside the house of the Lord. But do you see all these subtle Samuel one-liners in there sandwiched in between all that darkness? Right? All these things and then there's just these layers of goodness in there. And what does that mean? Nothing. Let's, let's go. Um, there's no denying that things in Shiloh, they're pretty raunchy. Right? But do you see that, that little kid over there? Do you see that little kid? Do you see little Samuel serving over there? Do you see Samuel growing in favor with God? Do you see Samuel over there? And it's as if all this terrible stuff that's happening around them, there are these glimmers of hope telling us that God is at work. And it's not really all that obvious at first glance. If you just read through it, it's not that obvious. And oftentimes, we read through the Bible thinking, oh, this, this is just a terrible story. Things are so dark, so bleak. What, what, what can God be doing here? But we see these little Samuel interjections in this story. It's as if the author is telling us what is happening in history, but reminding us, don't forget about Samuel. Don't forget about God giving hope to Israel. God is raising up new godly leadership, even in the darkest moments. God is preparing for the next moment, and the darkness is just temporary. It's not forever. And we can be sure that God prepares prepares a good provision for His people. And He supplies a godly leader who will be coming onto the scene. That's encouraging. For those of you who are in dark places, God's weaving that stuff into your life. You just got to kind of recognize it. You got to keep your antennas out for it. And sometimes all we see is bad. Right? All we see is sin. All we see is darkness and judgment. And we look at the terrible conditions of the world like like poverty or injustice and disease and starvation. And sometimes it's within the church where, where the church is causing harm. Like, man, why don't we do something? Or why are we doing that? But God is doing a work. God is raising up His leadership. To bring hope, to bring light, 
into His kingdom. There's a quiet thing going on and we just have to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, asking Him to show us, keeping our antennas up to see where the Holy Spirit is leading and He's guiding. And we fit into that. God hasn't forgotten His people in the darkness. And as we look at these Samuel side notes, especially verse 26, and the child Samuel grew in stature and favor both with the Lord and men. You'll notice that this will repeat will be repeated later on in the Bible, huh? Does this sound familiar? There's another child later on. Luke chapter 2. Right? They just came back from the temple after he was circumcised and Luke chapter 2 verse 40, Luke tells us And the child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Here we have a small Jesus note. And then we get another small Jesus note when he's 12 years old, and and Luke writes to us in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Sounds, sounds familiar? Right? 1 Samuel chapter 2, right? Verse 26. There's another child in the darkness. And the situations were pretty similar too, weren't they? In Jesus' time, the, the Jews were subjugated to the Romans who, who dominated, who oppressed the Israelites. And, and if we look at things religiously, things are pretty dark. Things are pretty bleak among the, among the religious leadership. Think about the leadership then. Who were the high priests? Annas and Caiaphas? Meh. Right? And then there were money changers in the temple, just like Hophni and Phineas robbing the people. Right? Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. Herod was the tetrarch of Galilee. Tiberius Caesar or Augustus, depending on the time, they were the head honchos of the era. All the while, God had slipped in there a child by the name of Jesus, who the Lord was raising up in the darkness. In the midst of all the junk, the son of David is in there. Some good filling was in there. And we must realize that no matter how much junk we have inside our church, no matter how much junk is outside the church, when we think that the darkness is overwhelming us, that it's too much, God is present. God is here with us. And in your life, there may be some bad things that have happened in your life. There are interjections of hope in your life. You just have to recognize it. Keep your antennas up. And there are these side notes of Jesus in your life. Like you being here. Like you hearing the message and the Holy Spirit ministering to you right now. I'm not like boasting in the message. This is God's Word. And the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now. And it's not an accident that you are here. God wants to show you a glimmer of light, a glimmer of hope in your life. And if you don't know Jesus as someone who loves you, who wants to deliver you from darkness, it's time to know that, not just up here, but here. Not like Hophni and Phinehas. They knew everything up here. They just didn't know it here. And not to just know about Jesus, but to know Him. And he, and he wants a relationship with you. There are these side notes of Jesus in your life, like you being here. And it's not an accident that you are here. Right? So, so don't harden yourself to Him. No, God loves you. And do you know, do you know He already knows all about you? Like, you're not going to surprise Him with anything. And He knows you better than you know yourself And He wants to reveal Himself to you. He knows you, you just don't know Him. And God wants to show you what love really is. And the Holy Spirit is patiently waiting at the entrance of your soul to let Him into your life. Everything that you can possibly feel guilty of, feel ashamed of, feel embarrassed about, all of that can be washed away because of what Jesus did for you on the cross. 
And He died for every wrong that you have done in your life so that you can now have a relationship with God. And the cool thing is, you don't have to wait to die to experience the love of Jesus. You can do it now. I don't know if there's anyone that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, so I'm just going to do it by faith. Right? And don't feel embarrassed because everyone's going to have their eyes closed, and we're going to pray for you. And if you don't know Jesus, we're going to pray for you now. And if you don't know him and you desire to know him, please raise your hand. Because what I want to do for you is I want to pray for you, I want to give you a Bible, and I want to study the Bible with you. And we'll set up times and we'll answer questions and we'll do things. And if it's not me, it'll be someone on the staff that will break open all these truths to you. And not to claim that we know everything, but you know, we're going to seek it together, praying together. And if you don't know the Lord and you desire to come to Him, please raise your hand so that I can pray for you and we can get together later and we can go deeper with this stuff. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for your message. Thank you for how your Holy Spirit works in each one of us. And I pray, Lord, for anybody that does not know who you are. That if our hearts are hardened, that those would be softened. For those who don't know you, Lord, that they would take that step of faith now, Lord, and identify themselves so that we can pray for them, so that I can pray for them, so that our church can surround them with love and answer any questions uh, that may arise, that we can invest into them and, and bring them through discipleship to you. So if that's you, please raise your hand. And Lord, also for those that are backslidden or that have kind of astrayed, we also pray for them, Lord, that they are not hardened to you like Hophni and Phineas were, that the lines weren't crossed and they, they crossed these lines. But we pray for them, Lord, and we also ask for them to identify themselves so that we can pray for them and we can come around them as well and support them through this time. And if that's you, please raise your hand. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for how you've spoken to us. Thank you for your words. Pray, Lord, that uh, you continue to work in the hearts of your people. Thank you so much for how you love us. And sometimes the things that we hear are hard for us to accept, uh, but they are truths. And we pray, Lord, that we would be able to discern what is of you and what is of our flesh, to identify the idols in our life and not to put those things before honoring you. In Jesus' name, amen.